But I feel actually, and I've noticed this with the earlier calls, if I don't have sufficient time to wake up, my brain simply does not function. I look for the words, I'm trying to finish a sentence, and it's just not there. Exactly. (laughs) Although I did have the most extraordinary start to a call with a German-based company last week. Uh, during lockdown, I painted... Did they go, Gesundheit? Uh, no, it was far worse than that. The, the wall behind me in the studio that I, I use for calls, I painted chroma green. Right. So I could do green screen work. Yes. Without having to use sheets and uh, rigs and poles. A, a flat green surface. It's perfect, right? So I'm doing my calls mm-hmm. from there, just because it's a simple background. It's where all my stuff is. Yes. I joined this call at quarter past seven in the morning, and the first thing that the German host says to me is, Colin, that's a very unflattering background. The green is doing no favours for you. Also, I can't see the top of your head. Oh, it's because you're going bald and you don't want to show anyone. And Gesundheit. Good and Morgan. I genuinely was lost for words. Like, even if my brain wasn't functioning, I thought that is absolutely not how you start a call by insulting the people who are meant to be taking you on this communications course for the next hour. I don't know. If the Germans don't want us to stereotype them, they need, they need to stop doing things like that. That is that just that brutal, blunt honesty right at the front of business is just that is just very much what you think from a stereotypical German in any media. I spoke to my my uh, my boss about it afterwards because he was on the call as well, uh, and to say, yeah, what what on earth happened at the start there? Because you know, you know Germans and senses of humor yeah. doesn't really tend to go. So I was wondering what what happened, and he he surmised that she was perhaps just very nervous and was attempting and to tried to crack some jokes. right and was attempting to break the ice, but instead just flat out <laughs> insulted me. <laughs> <laughs> by saying I was unfl- my background was unflattering and I was going bald, which I am, by the way. Right. To be clear. Everybody does eventually. Every single human being balds at least a little well, bit. Some of us are just better at it than others. So, we're, I mean, the last time I saw you, and we will have to rectify this, the last time I saw you was uh, 14 months ago in person. It's been a long time since in person seeing happened. Right. Can we, like, sit outside and have a drink at some point? Absolutely. Okay. Anyway, the last time I saw you, your hair was was voluminous oh no it's so re- my hair's had like recedes going on since i was late <laughs> teens it's just really yeah it's just kind of doing it slowly when it started i was like oh my goodness i'm gonna be having to shave my head by the time i'm 20 <laughs> but i'm still at a point where i feel like i've got an acceptable hairline where it's not so thin that i need to shave it yet okay but but your hair is uh, is it short now or is it still kind of long no, and floppy? I've, it is longer than ever. I haven't cut my hair since before <laughs> lockdowns began. In solidarity wow. with everybody else. That's bold. Yeah. Although I did the worst thing. Sorry, I'm, you're you're bringing up loads of great points here. I did the worst thing yesterday. I went to the barber and gave him the wrong instruction, <gasps> and so I left with basically a very very gradually short or slightly shorter version of what i walked in with half an hour earlier and i thought great i'm just gonna have to come back next week and actually explain what i wanted yeah he asked for the world's least least meaningful haircut <laughs> it's like you just gone round and snipped off the tiniest bit of every single bit of hair in my head just a, just a stray strand that was just a touch longer than all the other ones oh, yes, and then had one. to pay 19 quid for the pleasure Oof. and the other point you raised there is do you have a good side because i wondered if this is just like a thing that people say oh it's my good side do you actually have a good side because i do because i noticed that on the right side of my head my hairline is receding very slightly 
And when you when I face a certain way, you can see it really obviously. So anytime I'm in a picture, I'm always standing like a little oh. bit sideways, so you can't see it. I think I think hair, I think pattern pattern baldness is of different kinds. It does go at a different rate on each side. None of us are symmetrical. I can't tell you that I've noticed which side is better, but because of the way my hair kind of flows, it favors flopping over leftwards. So I I don't see my left side of my hairlines as often as I see my right nice. side. Okay. I think I think there's a lot of progress to be made societally in terms of um ex- bald bald acceptance and 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 receding hairline acceptance. I think this is genuinely something that contributes a lot to poor mental health. Oh no, I agree. Um, yeah. And we've got a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. So to the extent, I'm sure Graham won't mind, is that he has a fear that he will go bald because his father is right. basically bald and his older brother, who is just mm-hmm. about 30, is also at the top of his head. His hair is disappearing. Yes. So so Graham is of the same fear to the extent that he's considering looking into, can I get hair taken from the back of my head and put on the top instead? So that I don't go bald like my family. I mean, you, eventually, if you need it, yeah. Which is expensive. Um, Tell you that it's expensive. There's, there's, there's options, uh, but I would say that uh, my belief is that none of the options are super realistic for people because the literal royal family of the UK hasn't gone for them. <laughs> True. So, so there must be some drawbacks. <laughs> there's no real uh, get out of jail free card with it, but that's a huge part of the pressure is to have good hair, and it's like you can't opt into it. It's just. It's just the thing that happens. So why? Well, actually, I said it right then. I said, have good hair. All hair needs to be good. Half of a receded hairline needs to be good. A bald patch in the top of your crown, that needs to be good. It all needs to be seen as a good look. It is a good before look. Before we can have considered ourselves progressed in society. Because if we're wondering about every little thing that can cause bad mental health and um, bad like depression rates, getting mocked for your hair and feeling guilty and bad about your hair, that's going to be one of them. Absolutely. And it's not just men that bald. Oh, yeah, no, I know that. Imagine what it would be like to have a receding hairline as a female. It must be even worse. Or to have actual conditions where there are just clumps of hair missing. I know at least a couple of women where that is a a fact of life. And then this... The societal standard of perfect hair being the the guarantee and the the golden uh, golden uh, expectation. How are we supposed to meet that? It's it's not something we could choose. I didn't go to the hair shop. I mean, you can go to the hair shop, but it's not it's not real. And then if it's not if your hair's not real, then you also get made fun of. Right. Well, before we actually start the show proper, my final point is: I wish I had had the opportunity to dye my hair as a kid, so I could say I did it. Because I always wanted to, like, have some blonde streaks, right. or you know, you, you did the kind of spray-on hair color stuff. That didn't really count. Yeah. So, but, so you know, you wanted to last a month. Yeah. Right? You know, there was there was the standard. It was very acceptable that my sisters, for example, would would do stuff with their hair. I know yeah. Mel went peroxide blonde a couple of times, and I'm Indeed. sure as he's done stuff as well. But <laughs> I never did because it was like, hmm, yeah, but you don't you don't want to put blonde streaks not, in your hair. It's not really masculine. I, I th- honestly, I do think that was part of it. I knew that if I was going to get blonde streaks in my hair at the age of 16, it was going to be a bit of a giveaway, but yeah. it's fine. You know, the current, the current thing I am considering... And this is, uh, again, a bold step for me, mm-hmm. is uh, actually painting my fingernails black. Absolutely. Go go for it. Because I, I, I do like that look, and I would like to try it, just to see how it looks. And I know that it will get some 
perhaps some unusual looks from other people, but I don't care. It's something I would like to try. Give it a go, absolutely. And it, I think I think something like black fingernails that was like something to make fun of some number of years ago, and it's going to exactly. be looked upon as like a why on earth was that a thing we made fun of? And I see people doing it. It's one thing. One thing that's good about the internet scene and all these streamers is that they all do these things and they get a bit mocked for it here and there. They get seen as cringy internet stars, but they do it. Yep. Um, they're just regular people who are just just chatting with a bunch of people with their fingernails painted, with their hair dyed. And it's like, yep, that's like they're they're driving society forward by making these things a bit more acceptable. Every little thing yeah. that we manage to make acceptable is a good thing. My my final point before we start, I realize this is a very long intro. Last Thursday, after we did the show, I went out to Dunfermline with Graham. We went for a skate around a park, uh-huh. and as we were skating. Uh, there was about three boys in front of us, young teenagers, who, as we skated past, shouted the word poofters. Yes. Uh, or it may have been poofter singular. And it, again, this is the second time it's happened, it totally threw me. Mm-hmm. Because I don't, know, I don't know how to react when a stranger shouts a homophobic slur. Yeah. At, uh, at, now, uh, it's similar, similar to the first time it happened, which was last year, last June, uh, it it is likely, or so I can say with almost certainty, it's because of Graham because he's he is outwardly right. Yeah, it's much more obvious. You know, he was wearing a, a very colourful jumper, I mean, yeah. and some some nice shorts. Whereas I was going for the my classic look of uh, deathcore t shirt and and jeans. So he is he's a much easier target, but. It's and he he is someone who I really admire because he just doesn't let it get to him, and it's also because he's heard it for a lot longer, a long long yeah. time. Whereas for me, this is a new experience. Yeah, but that's the that's the second time in less than a year that someone, a total stranger, has just decided to shout a homophobic slur. Yeah, at me and my partner, which is very very unpleasant, and I didn't I didn't know how to react. Part of me wanted to. I said this to him. I said, "Do I do I go back round and like?" Start kicking the no. out of them. No, or I mean, you do, could. or there's an option. But that was like genuinely. That's my instinct because I go into right. protective mode. It's like how dare you say that to him or to us? And then my second instinct was actually no, no. What we did was right. We just skated on, didn't say anything. But then my final conclusion was I could have and maybe should have just stopped and calmly asked. Yeah. Why did you shout that? Yeah. No, I think that's the best way. Um, asking people to examine the things they've done or said or their beliefs. Yep. If it doesn't help in the moment, it might help in like five years when they think about it and they remember that moment and they go, "Oh wait, I was I was that kid. I was that bad." Yep. And to to me, it was you know I thought of the perfect response twenty four hours later, but in the of course in the of heat course. of the moment, I just I I didn't know I was completely lost, and for the next half hour, my brain is just going mad thinking. Oh, I could have said that, or I should have done that, or oh, that would have been a really witty remark to have said. And and you think of what you would have said or what you should have done, yeah. way after the fact. No, there's there's options for witty and stuff like that. Like one of the one of the ones I see floating about is just some like you turn around and you ask like, "All right, did your did your dad tell us about our date?" Right? That's funny. <laughs> Haha. It's implying that their dad's gay instead. But all of that stuff just adds fuel to the fire. Uh, yeah, I think I agree. the only thing to do is to ask for the examination in the moment. You say, hey, well, why'd you say that? And they're like, oh, it's funny. You go, like, why is that funny? And then they say, whatever. You can just leave. At any point, you just leave from there on. Yep. You don't actually have to listen to their answer. <laughs> you just ask and you can leave. And then they've got that, that they've got the, this didn't go as expected 
bookmark in their brain of mm-hmm. they had to think about it for a second and that will stick with them for for a long time hopefully and the more it happens to them the more it sticks with them the best and especially if if you if you're a bystander and you see this happen directed at someone else step in and ask hey why yep and then it's you, you've done a good thing i think what is the most difficult part is that if i were to go back let's say next week and exactly the same scenario play out I would know what to do, but it's because it was unex- it's because it's unexpected. Yeah, it's, you know the last thing you expect when you're having a nice time skating around a park is for people to shout homophobic slurs at you. So yeah, what I, and this is the the kind of uncomfortable and disappointing uh, mode I'm kind of moving towards, which is expect someone to shout something at you whilst you're out, mm-hmm. and if if you're in that frame of mind, then it's much less likely to kind of throw me or upset me as it did. Uh, which is, again, though, it's, it's really sad that I'm having to get to yeah. that point of view where I'm expecting someone to shout something whilst I'm out. I mean, but that's like walking outdoors as a female, right? Uh, also um, true. Very or, true. Or, or walking outdoors as a, as someone who's disabled, right? Or, yep. or somebody who's a caretaker for somebody who's disabled. All that. All that. There's, there's, I think the majority of people in any population have to walk outdoors expecting that they're going to have something yelled at them because there is this... And then there's not a small minority. It's like quite absolutely a, quite a bunch of very loud and very obnoxious people who need to feel superior or need to feel like they're funny, and they need to do that by taking out on other people. Yes, yeah, so, and it's it's too common. And the only thing to do is this intervention by education. Yeah. Sorry, I realised that with that statement of "Oh, I can't believe I'm in this position," I'm completely forgetting the fact that as you say this is something that, that at least half of the population deals with anyway well yeah well it's you're doing you're, you're having to enter into this situation because you have removed yourselves from the supposed norm the supposed right. normal of like white healthy uh, average male <laughs> right yeah so as soon as you step out of the line in quotes with in regards to like sexuality and present presentation or in regards to uh, gender or in regards to physical health or any sort of blemish including baldness you have to start being aware at all times that you you might have to have a response to somebody saying something awful okay well thanks for taking that full circle it gives me a nice uh, segue into the show thank you very much for listening this is seesaw parade episode 248 we are two away jim from the big quarter century milestone which is super important we're gonna host a pandemic special (laughs) we are now i'm calling in east james i am better get planning for that uh, pandemic special and thank you again for for listening this is scotland's longest running season one of any entertainment news podcast in existence it's also your new favorite podcast and less popular than fascism yes let's of course remind you of that important fact that more people actually enjoy fascism than this podcast but yeah. thank you you're a yeah. valued member and i really do we really do appreciate your yeah. your listening ears and also your your thoughts your comments anything you want to say yeah please comment and if you really do like fascism please please comment on that too and then we can we can have a discussion where you're probably going to be wrong okay well you can uh, get in touch with the show at seesaw parade on twitter as many of you have done over the last uh, few weeks thank you very much keep them coming in and also seesaw parade at gmail.com for anything longer form than 280 characters uh, but james again we uh, have or or you know what record a youtube video and 
of whatever you wanted to say and send that to us. <laughs> yeah, you could do that. Uh, you can also send us reviews, which we'll get to later. We have another listener review this week, which is excellent. Oof. Of an audiobook. Oh, magic. I like those. Yeah. Okay, well, before that, we've got to talk about Boris and India and <laughs> lots of other things. So let's crack on, oh, shall we? Man. Oh man, okay, this is the news that the Prime Minister Boris Johnson is being investigated by the Electoral Commission into the funding of how the refurbishments to his Downing Street flat were paid for. Yes. Uh, So the spending watchdog said there were reasonable grounds to suspect that an offence may have occurred. Oh boy. Uh, Boris has been under growing pressure to declare how the renovations were paid for after ex-advisor Dominic Cummings said to uh, in a blog that there was a plan for Tory donors to secretly pay yeah. to refurb the flats. So there's a, there's a whole list of issues I want to talk about here. First of all, uh, Mr. Johnson told MPs initially he had covered the bill personally, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> what he meant was like. He asked other people to, to cover the bill. Exactly. <laughs> he personally asked them to do it. Personally, I arranged for other people to pay for it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I hit the bill <laughs> under covers personally. We have then had a, a host of other Tory people come out to say, "No, no, no. We need we need to talk about other things, other more important things." But yes, now is not the time to like worry about corruption and and sleaze. <laughs> Indeed, uh, but Sir Keir Starmer made a very simple point. He said, "Look, if anyone in the UK was to have renovations done to their flat, they'd be able to tell you in a couple of words who paid for it." Yep. Why is the Prime Minister unable to do so? Yep. James, let's let's start with the issue at the heart of this, which is uh, Dominic Cummings accusing the Prime Minister of having the secret plan, which then turns out to be somewhat accurate. Uh, this, again, is just a reminder of the sleaze at the heart of the current UK government. Well, and it's, and it's a reminder that this is how much happened before Cummings got booted. <laughs> yes. Right. So imagine what has happened since as well. And he's not even done his full reveal. He is going for the best form of defense. He's realized that he could be in danger if he doesn't Oh yeah. If he doesn't take the first strike and he is he's going he's going he's going hard and he's I'm sure he got plenty of evidence because he seems like that kind of a di- a guy who is prepared for um pushback when he when he does the major releases. But no, this is this one of all things. I can't believe this is the thing that is actually getting some traction yeah i know right uh, it shouldn't surprise me it shouldn't surprise me that uh, endless corruption and the rich getting richer it is is fine but then like boris boris's flat renovation is like the thing that kicks off because it feels more meaningless but of course it's a bit more approachable it's a bit more understandable i can i can get my fingers into the how much does it cost to renovate a flat pie i can't get my fingers into the how much is a billion dollars scandal Right, so so I would say it is more relatable to your everyday person. I agree with that. Yeah. Even if it is, let's say, on the grand scheme of things, less important than who's been giving out billion-dollar contracts. But it also, like, smaller amounts of money have been paid to conservatives for their gain and for their favour. Oh, yeah. So it's pretty big. Right, you, you touched on Dominic Cummings there. I believe that's a, a good place to take this because, of course, he left in December very uh, ostensibly with a big cardboard box of stuff. 
and <laughs> it was definitely full. <laughs> according to the Sunday Times, he is genuinely in fear of going to prison. Yeah, and according according to the paper, according to the paper, yeah. uh, either either over irregular spending during Brexit or his his conduct in government. It could be both, <laughs> to be honest. And probably more things than that. Right. Uh, and people close to Dominic Cummings, again, quoting the Sunday Times here, yes. believe that this is what prompted this nuclear reaction. In effect, <laughs> as you say, getting on the front foot and then to, to publicise the, the evidence of his innocence. And in my eyes, Cummings has got nothing to lose no. uh, in comparison to the Prime Minister. Uh, and if this no. fear of prison is genuinely what's driving him, then as you say, this could just be the start of... A long list of things that the Prime Minister has done which were illegal or unethical or immoral or, you yeah. know, on, on top of all the other things. So so to me, it's it's a, a version of you know, Dominic, Dominic Cummings, nothing, nothing left to lose, so why not well, just yeah. go on the offensive? There's also the question of, is he just wanting back in? Is he putting his... his um is he is he is he and my axing into Gove's government or something where he wants to get Gove as the next PM and then he'll get his old job back and lead the nation from the shadows once again? But surely he's learned his lesson that his style doesn't incorporate with government and it does put him at risk of jail. So why would he want back in? But hey, maybe he is buddy buddy with Gove and we'll and we'll see them try and tag team into power. And I'm sure Cummings has got all the tapes he needs to bring Gove down as well. Yeah, uh, there's, there's, this is an interesting bunch of infighting. The only thing that really hurts about seeing the Tory infighting is that it never hurts them in the polls. Nope. Whereas the vaguest whiff of infighting within any left-leaning party is like a disaster in the polls, and it gets reported in the media like the party's just dead now. Whereas this, hey, Tories probably got up, got up, got up in the polls after this. Yeah, that's that's something I know we've touched on before, and I, I do not understand why that is the impact, or rather lack of impact, that any sort of scandal yeah. seems to have. I mean, the fact that the Prime Minister cannot even say how many kids he has is, to me, astounding. Yeah. And again, a, a, an astonishing reflection of what uh, your average Britain makes of, of those in power. But let's move on. David Brownslow, or rather Lord David Brown, uh, Brownlow, I should say, uh, according to The Guardian, uh, who is the 521st richest person in the UK, uh, was revealed small number. to have paid the Tory party nearly 60 grand towards this makeover. So this came, yeah. a, this came a couple of days after the initial story. Uh, but, it, but again, we're, we're waiting on Boris saying as much because he continues to uh, either lie through his teeth and say or dodge oh no 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 not at all or as you say he'll say no I don't think this is anything to worry about and there's nothing yeah. to see here yeah he's going to be the ultimate arbiter over whether or not he broke the rules <laughs> and therefore he didn't break the rules and we don't know everybody who paid for this and we don't know the full number yet we do know that it's probably more than the 30,000 that they're supposed to spend per year they, um, yes but that's that's a grant that they get per year so if, if they overspend from their own money that's fine finding out who paid for it is still a big deal though it just kind of blew my mind that there is a 30,000 refurb grant per year <laughs> yeah, for PMs. per year 
What on earth could you spend that on in any flat? Okay, well, well, that actually leads on really nicely to the penultimate point here, which is uh, the fact that this is from The Independent, who said that actually the biggest backlash to this entire story may be the fact that Carrie Simmons, uh, Boris Johnson's uh, girlfriend, called the flat, which was uh, they inherited from Theresa May, a John Lewis nightmare. <laughs> Wait, and oh John, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, so they're being very snobby about John Lewis. Yeah. Now, as a reminder... John, it's just too middle class, that John Lewis. It just screams mild wealth. <laughs> right. So to most people in Britain, you would love to have some John Lewis furniture because that stuff's expensive. Yeah, yeah. You get, you get your one or two John Lewis pieces and you treat them kindly. Right, and, and most people will have wedding <laughs> gift lists with John Lewis because it's, it's like, yeah. good quality middle class stuff. So for the prime minister... This is how you enter the middle class. Right, for his prime minister and, the, and his girlfriend to then be dismissing this as a John Lewis <laughs> nightmare, you are, in effect, reinforcing the fact that you are snobs of the highest order. I mean, uh, we and we saw they were. We knew that, but it's reinforcing it. And John Lewis themselves had some yeah. had some fun with this on social media, and then actually posted the picture of the removals van at the end of Downing Street <laughs> on uh, on Thursday. Yeah, okay. It's just such, and again, it's just. I think the big difference is just that it's so approachable. When they make fun of John Lewis, everybody's like, "Wait, but wait." I can't afford John Lewis. <laughs> yeah. So therefore, it's a really approachable insult. Whereas when they just like say whatever about some immigrant that I don't identify with, it's like, oh, okay, all right, up plus one in the polls. <laughs> yeah. We'll I mean, see. We'll see if this is truly damaging. If any of this actually sticks, <laughs> there is an investigation. the The, the investigation only gets kicked uh, if there is legitimate suspicion or legitimate evidence. So this could go somewhere. I mean, f- for all but the tiniest proportion of the UK population, John Lewis is posh. Yeah. And I'm sure all of us would dream of a series of good life choices that leave us furious at our terrible John Lewis furniture. It's, so, it's, I, I cannot believe it. I, I've got a new kettle this week for the first time <laughs> since I moved into my flat. It's been on wow. the list since the second year when my, when my original kettle, I was like, this kettle just does not do the job. Amazing. It's, it's been on the list that long eight years and then this needs to be replaced list. I finally got a new one um, and it's amazing and it's kind of posh. It's not John Lewis, but it's probably, you can probably get it at John Lewis. Okay. That's the kind of level we're talking about. Us normies can't afford to replace basic appliances for, for a decade <laughs> and then <laughs> we, we, how are we supposed to imagine the wealth it would take to see 30k a year is not enough and to see John Lewis as like not uh, not worth right, and that's the other aspect it's 30k a year I keep thinking I'm saying it wrong because it's so unbelievable no. <laughs> to, to me it's like okay each month I could potentially buy like something expensive, for example, a sofa bed yeah. or a new fridge because I need a new fridge. But I have to budget for that yeah. every couple of months if I really want it. So for someone to be told, hey, you get 30 grand a year to renovate your flat, that's it's preposterous. But it's also just, that's British politics for you. Yeah, and, and also... If you need more than that, if you're spending in the regions of six figures, how long do you think you're going to be staying there? Well, can I also... What makes that worth it? (laughs) Can I also add that the the wallpaper Carrie Simmons bought was £850 per roll. I'm pretty sure... disgusting. Yeah, the wallpaper I bought for my bedroom a couple months ago was maybe seven quid a roll. 
850 quid. It's basically gold. And then they pretend that they understand the people. And they pretend that they're normal like the rest of us. Right. Okay, one final Boris story before we move on. Uh, this was uh, this disappeared in amongst Flatgate, but this was the news that Boris allegedly said he would rather see bodies piled high in their thousands mm. than order another COVID lockdown. So these uh, explosive remarks apparently came after he reluctantly accepted a second lockdown last autumn yeah. when Britain was in the, the middle of its second wave. Uh, number 10, of course, dismissed this as a lie. Of course. But you had this being corroborated f- by everybody from the, the Daily Mail who seemed to be spearheading this campaign to undermine the Prime Minister. Uh, ITV, BBC, Daily Telegraph were all backing it up. It seems pretty legit, yeah. It seems to me, and it also seems to me like a very Boris thing to say. Yeah. You know, it's... And usually where, where there's smoke, there's fire... And this is something that... It's also the fact that it's emerged, what, eight months after it was made? Yeah, yeah. There's got to be evidence of this, whether it's a Zoom recording or or someone who is hastily typing up notes. It's not like, oh, by the way, we're going to invent this Boris quote. Boris said this. I'm convinced of that. No, it genuinely feels like the establishment has decided that now is the time to start cashing in on Boris as the fall guy. They feel like... The end of all the bad things is here. If they start calling Boris now, they can pin all the bad Brexit stuff on him, all the bad pandemic stuff on him. So they're setting him up from now on until he goes as n- not supported by by whoever. And this is Daily Mail included. So this is this is this. I'm surprised that it disappeared as, as quick as it appeared. Um, but this was a big one for me because it wasn't just like the Guardian and then nobody else, and it wasn't just some Labour member tweeting it. This yeah. was this was from the top, um, and it is a disgusting thing to say. But you know what else is disgusting? Letting hundreds of thousands of people die. That's bad too. Indeed, they already did bad enough. Yeah, and on the the COVID front, just some latest figures have come in just now. It's uh, Friday mid afternoon. Uh, coronavirus infections in the UK are back to levels seen at the end of last summer, which means around one in a thousand people are currently infected. So in the week up to the 24th of April, infections fell in all four home nations, were 20 times lower than in January, but Scotland still has the highest percentage of infections. In England, it's one in uh, just over a thousand. Scotland is one in 640. Yes. So we're still, we still have some way to go, uh, but by all accounts, England is pressing on to its no restrictions by June. Which, to me, James, is interesting. Yeah. But also the fact that if, if, if this is what they do, and I do imagine they will, because these rates are looking more promising, Scotland's going to have to... It will be under pressure, I would say, to do something similar. Because if in England, people are just going about daily life as they were 18 months ago, mm-hmm. and in Scotland you're still subjected to level three rules, which means only, what, two households can meet outside? Yeah. Or indoors at a restaurant? People will not, and businesses will not have that for a particularly long period. So I suspect Scotland will be maybe, what, a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks behind it? Yeah, it's, it's as realistic, though. When you're looking at the numbers to compare Scotland and England... Because of the state of England, there are some places that are less infected than others. If they're doing a global, everybody's free now move, there are probably going to be some areas that are at as at risk as Scotland would be right then to 
to release um, uh, the, uh, everybody to get infected <laughs> again. Yeah, right. Um, so I, I don't think it's too unrealistic to go down the same path, but I think it would be as ambitious and as risky. Um, but with uh, with the vaccines that we're seeing, um, there would be fewer deaths. And with the fact that vaccinations and stuff also help recovery to go a bit easier, it's it's less of a risk for long COVID and stuff like that. Um, it, it's still, in my opinion, not worth, and I'll still be isolating away and only meeting very few people in outdoor environments and all that, even if the rules do get relaxed and whatnot. Okay, anything else to add? Uh, oh, yeah, the Tories... Um, are getting a wee bit of a, a sue, a, getting sued a wee bit um, this week because they seem to be using public money, um, especially via um, government broadcasts and government messaging to prop up their own party's uh, messaging right. and their own party's like slogans and stuff like that. So um, they've been using COVID press conferences to bash their opposition. Indeed. They've been using uh, graphics for government re- um, thing, government um, messaging that just has this Tory slogan on it and has uh, prominent figures within the Tory party displayed and all these things and apparently it's crossing the line into hey you're just doing party advertising with with public money now so stop so that's the thing that's still going on it's been going on since the election I remember it <laughs> we called it out um, but now they're getting told to stop we'll see if it actually happens James, let's uh, look at some other issues in the news over the last week. Let's go to India, oh, yeah. where officials in Delhi have been urged to find more sites for cremations. Yeah. Because the city's morgues and crematoriums have been completely overwhelmed by the masses of COVID deaths yep. in the country. So a, a second wave of the virus is ravaging parts of the country. We briefly talked about it last week. 386,000 new cases were reported on Friday, which is the biggest one-day increase on record for any country in the world. It's terrifying. It's it's staggering, and it's only getting worse. There were uh, around another 3,500 deaths nationwide, um, and there was 400 in Delhi, which is a record for the capital, Uh, and the number of total infections in India has now passed 18 million, and within a a couple of days, it'll be north of 20. So, So, a couple of issues here. The first one is did you see any of the footage, which I believe it was the BBC had a, a crew over there who were in the hospitals who who basically were explaining that there is not enough oxygen to go round. Yeah. And this, this particular hospital the BBC were filming in had oxygen supplies for one more hour. Oh, yeah. And then that was it. Yeah. They were, they, they were run out. Yeah. And, and the, I mean, the footage was, was harrowing. And at the end of the report, it was something like... 18 people had died in that hospital as a result of the oxygen running out, which is, it's awful. And seeing how that, um, how the virus is, is taking over India is, and so quickly, from certainly from a, a Western perspective, does seem to be awfully quickly, well, yeah. is, is scary. India has been one of those countries that has seemingly been mismanaging a lot of the, the pandemic responses here and there from day one, and just luck was carrying them through. It's been hard to for us to hear about those mismanagements like virally and stuff because people haven't really cared enough. And also because yeah. there's a bit of a, a blackout on social media every now and then about um, 
anti-Indian government um, stories. Um, but that's a different question. So I'm not, I don't know what cracked and what set this all off this time. I can't say it's hugely surprising, but it is massively harrowing to see it occur. This is one of the most densely populated places on earth. Uh, with also incredible amounts of poverty uh, in certain classes in certain areas, so it, it just it's it's a it's the worst mix that we could have uh, imagined, um, and it's all as you say it's only going to get worse, so it's only going to be harder to bear. Um, but one group of people that I'm not seeing getting enough of the blame for the current state of affairs globally in terms of the pandemic, is everybody who is holding on to the IP for whatever vaccine they are holding on to. Right. Every single person who hasn't registered their vaccines as like public domain or has registered their vaccine as like free to free to recreate and here's how you do it are being selfish and they're contributing to massive amounts of death in the name okay. of profit. Hold on. So just, just for a further explanation, this is vaccine creators who are essentially refusing to share how they cooked up their vaccine yeah. because they want to protect the, the, the property. You know, it's it's ours. It's our vaccine. Intellectual property, yeah. They want to keep the rights to it. They want to make all the money from it, right. um, which means that it has it is more limited in production. There are plenty of places in the world that could be producing vaccines that aren't because they don't know how, they haven't been told the, the current method. And in the past, there have been vaccines created for plenty things that were immediately um, given out to the world um, and were never really profited from. So in this instance, we've got a bunch of people who, yes, they used their capitalism to produce the vaccines quickly with new scientific methods, but uh-huh. they are now using that capitalism to profit off a catastrophe and profit off hundreds of thousands of deaths in several different countries where we, we should have had max vaccines in mass production beyond this ages ago. I, I saw a map actually this week which had colour-coded parts of the world with when the vaccine will essentially be fully ruled out. And of course, mm. the countries were in, which were in a, a bright green were, you know, the UK, uh, America, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of other westernised nations. Then you have the ones who are in orange, which is the likes of uh, you know Brazil and uh, even like Canada, most of Europe, yeah. which I believe was going to be early 2022 before the vaccines get to them. Mm-hmm. And then there was the vast majority of Africa. Yeah. If, if, sorry, all of Africa, except maybe South Africa, which was coloured in red, yeah. which was something like end of 2022, start of 2023, by the time v- the vaccine rollout is, is yep. finished, which is, uh, again unsurprising but that is the way it's that's the way the world is which is yes rich people first poor people where it's less profitable or perhaps not profitable at all to the end of the line yeah and and not only are we going to be profiting off and i say we i'm not profiting off of it i hope but i will eventually but i'll get to that in a second not only are companies and governments profiting off um keeping vaccine supply low so that they get to sell it better um, but I am absolutely certain that once we've recovered and other countries haven't, we will be taking advantage of that to gain more uh, <laughs> power over them economically or more power over them right. uh, directly. And then when they are recovering and we're we're maybe offering them vaccines, I'm sure that we'll we maybe we'll be giving them some vaccines and things like that, but we will still be leveraging every single situation to 
to better our nations in terms of the economic standing. It will happen. Okay, right. Let's move on and uh, talk Brexit. Uh, Fishing crews across the UK are claiming they've been disastrously let down by the UK government's failure to reach a deal with Norway. Why? I am shocked. Indeed. So UK fleets will not have access to Norway's subarctic seas following a breakdown in UK-Norway negotiations. So one trawler in particular, which is uh, based in Hull, catches 9% of the fish sold in Britain's chip shops. Uh, say, say it's going to be tied up for the next year. Following no chippies the, for us. Indeed, following the collapse in talks. Uh, governments say uh, they'd offered a fair deal, but the two sides were too far apart. So, of course, the UK's departure from the EU means it's it's no longer part of the European Common Fisheries Policy yep. and instead has to negotiate with individual countries yep. directly over what they mm-hmm. they catch. So, whilst they had a, a essentially a basic agreement, it worked both ways in that UK vessels could uh, go further north to catch the, mm-hmm. the cod that they basically catch all the time and Norway would come here to get things like uh, mackerel and uh, blue whiting. But now that that's not happening, neither of them can do it. And so everyone's very unhappy about this. And and it's not a shock at all. Um, <laughs> it, it just, I mean, I'm happy for the fish. I, I really Want hope that all of the fishing deals falling apart will, will make the overall situation of, of fishing worldwide just a little bit more sustainable. Uh, I, I guess... This is an opportunity for a lot of these businesses to kind of like retool a wee bit. Yep. Try and find their ways to be more sustainable and more directly profitable. Maybe like less destroy the earth E. But overall, it's no surprise. They're, they're, it's, it's hard to come to agreements all on your own with very little power. Um, <laughs> and therefore, it didn't happen. And now everybody loses, except maybe the fish. Indeed. But the fish probably just are going to keep losing just as much. It's just going to be the Norwegians that catch, catch them all instead. Uh, yeah. Uh, essentially, it'll just mean that more people go to the North Sea or the, the Scottish version or the Scottish coast of the North Sea and, and the yeah. West Coast. So the fish will still get caught just by a more concentrated group of people. I I I really I really am getting getting like a very mild constant panic over the state of how we're going to handle like the global food food supply. It sucks. All these businesses that are doing things just cheaply instead of like safely. <laughs> I, I hate well, it. I mean, it's we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's also the fact that the industry is massively subsidised. That the the government yeah, gives yeah. the industry money. To make it profitable or to make it uh, affordable. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Take away the subsidies. Demand that they only get subsidized if they're doing things in an ethical way. If, if fish becomes a little bit less affordable, you know who should be subsidized? Poor people. Poor people should get fish tokens that they get to yep, exchange for, me. for fish. Okay, let's move <laughs> they on. They should just get actual money, by the way. The fish tokens was a bit of a joke. They should just get given money. Right. Poor people should get given money. Yes, no, no, I, I agree entirely. Okay, let's move on. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has promised to investigate after 44 people died, well, at least 44, yep. in a crush at a religious festival in the northeast of the country. So, so yes. dozens more, hundreds uh, more were injured. Mm-hmm. 
at the uh, Lag Bomber celebration, which takes place uh, annually at the foot of Mount Meron. It had been allowed to go ahead because of the success that Israel has made of the uh, vaccine rollout. Yes. And uh, it was the largest event in the country since the pandemic began, but a, a crush uh, around 1am local time uh, at the foot of this mountain led to essentially dozens and dozens of people falling down a set of steps and then a, a trampling stampede yeah. happened. And videos posted online showed uh, thousands of people struggling to, to get through this narrow passageway. So this, to me, James, is we've seen this before and um, yeah, it's it's bad. Yeah, as I we've seen it. We've seen it before. What can you do but just feel like, sorry for all those helpless people that got caught up in a thing that was out of their control. Like, it's awful. This kind of stuff is awful. And I guess it's why there's a whole bunch of care about health and safety and things. And it's a shame to see it go wrong at any point. Um, and whatever the investigation finds, I hope it it makes the future a safer place for whoever else is left. Um, but yeah, again, it's another harrowing instance in in the modern world. Okay, well, Israel's also been in the headlines this week because the Human Rights Watch, uh, the US-based NGO, published a 213-page report which stated that Israel has met the legal definition for crimes of apartheid as uh, set out by the Rome Statute. So, uh, according to the HRW, this uh, threshold has been crossed in relation to the treatment of Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Uh, The HRW have called on the United Nations to verify their claim and then to apply an arms embargo against Israel until steps are taken to end such crimes. So, James, this got very little in the way of press, but it's it's a statement. We had uh, we've had a couple of Israeli-based um, businesses, well, maybe not businesses, think tanks, which have uh, published similar studies showing that uh, Israeli Israeli authorities are committing crimes against humanity in terms of apartheid and persecution. Uh, but this is this a start of something bigger, or is it simply another uh, footnote yeah, in the bottom of of news stories? I mean, yeah, like who listens to the UN? Haha, <laughs> meme, 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 right? Um, but we'll see. Every single time a report comes out from any uh, voice of authority or respected voice, it's just another thing in the stack to eventually call back to and say, "Hey, look, this has been going on long enough. Change it." I think they should have changed it years ago, decades ago. I don't know when it's going to be enough for, to convince them that they are they are being evil. Um, maybe the UN will care enough about this one because it's a it's a lengthy report. Surely, with that much uh, time and effort put into it, it's not just a throwaway thing that goes into the burner pile. Right? They're preempting the response a lot by by saying this is not a thing to compare to the apartheid in South Africa. This is a different. Uh, this is different in these ways. They've they've specified. Uh, I think it was three three ways that is specifically, um, yep. looked into. I can, I can help help you out with a couple of them. So so one of them is the demolition of Palestinian homes. Yep, where Israeli forces are just going into Palestine and bulldozing people's houses. Yeah. because they're Palestinian. Yeah. Just sounds sounds pretty bad to me. Just saying, and I might not be an expert on yeah, apartheid. That's but, terrible. Hey, it's stacking up. Um, 
we've been a voice against the Israeli regime enough. We're a tiny little voice, but and we're not very intelligent, but we've noticed the the patterns here. Anybody can notice the patterns here. And we saw this with uh, you know Trump and and Jerusalem uh, a few years ago. Yeah, but it's the fact that. You know, it, it, yeah, the Israeli forces will go in. They'll just demolish Palestinian homes because they're Palestine. You know, because it's Palestine. Yeah, and it, it's but it's also the fact that if you live in Palestine, you have an inability to go anywhere. Your freedom is restricted. You have to essentially stay yeah. in this little zoned off area, and the Israelis are gradually kind of mission creeping their borders so that Indeed, yeah. more and more of the land becomes. I'm using air quotes, Israel, yeah. and the Palestinians are squeezed into a smaller and smaller space whilst also being refused any sort of uh, ability to go anywhere, uh, access to proper health services or government uh, services, yeah. whilst also yeah, demolishing their homes. So uh, to me, James, this is another example of something which is happening, factually happening in the world. Absolutely. But because politics and because... Yeah, exactly. Weapons and arms and stuff, nothing is done. Well, yeah, and and vested interest from the US and the UK. If we can see some of these bigger countries from the West say, hey, yeah, this is too far. Let's stop. Let's let's stop now. We might see some progress. But until the US is, is willing at any point to try and curtail any of this evil... Um, it's just going to keep going because as long as you've got one of the big names in the UN on your side you, vetoing everything that comes out against you, you'll be fine. Uh, but who knows? Biden, Biden might might have the popularity he needs, and he might have the power he needs to say, "Yep, this is evil. You better stop now." Okay, well, we're talking off Biden. It did take him over a hundred years, but he became the first. <laughs> sorry, he not is him. a hundred. Not him personally, but it's taken his role of uh, or his seat of power as U.S. president. He became the first one to officially recognize the massacre of Armenians under the hands of the Turkish Ottoman Empire as genocide. Yes. Which uh, this particular commentator says it risks a potential political fracture with Turkey, but it does signal a commitment to global human rights. So in a statement marking the 106th anniversary of the massacre's start, uh, Biden essentially confirmed that each year we remember those who lost their lives in this genocide and to recommit ourselves to uh, preventing such an atrocity from ever happening again. Of course... uh, When it's kind of like going on in several countries right now. So, Biden? (laughs) Right. So, so to me, uh, and again, I'm using the words of this particular piece, it's the move to call this a genocide is a campaign pledge to finally use that word to describe the systematic killing and deportation of Armenians in what is now Turkey, more than 100 years ago. Now, of course, Biden's predecessors in the White House had stopped short of ever using the G word, wary of damaging ties with Turkey. Yeah. Uh, But, and of course, this was received very, very badly. Uh, we had the uh, the Turkish foreign minister. There was major astroturfing on the internet. I don't know what that means. You can explain in a second. But the foreign minister for Turkey said, if the US wants to worsen ties, the decision is theirs. Yeah. And uh, we're not going to take lessons about our history from anyone. We reject this statement. It's only based on populism. Yeah, it's kind of based on facts. But, you know... That's up to them to respond. I kind of do hope that their response is to recognize the genocide of the Native American populations indeed, by the US indeed. and all of the rest. That would be a pretty good response. Hey, Turkey, thank you for listening. I think there's two elements of this that confused me 
historically. One, the genocide doesn't continue. It's not still ongoing. So I don't see why there is a hurdle for any nation to recognize it because it's it's because it's national embarrassment they don't want to be seen to say actually you know what we did get this wrong I mean, 100 like, years ago is it embarrassing like if i found out that somebody in my family had committed war crimes 100 years ago i'd be pretty proud to be like yeah i hate them yeah i hate that person from my family and i don't want to be that so turkey would be like yeah we hate that we don't want to be that. We're better than them. We're better than, than whatever they were 100 years ago. But it's even the same way. And I was reading about this uh, this week because of a, a particular Oscar contender about the uh, the massacre of Bosnian Muslims in Srebrenica yeah. in 1995, where seven to 8,000 men yeah. and boys were essentially, essentially massacred and uh, buried in mass graves. Yeah. The Serbs still refused to accept that as uh, maybe genocide, or I can't remember the word, but they refused to accept it, even though blatantly... It just happened. You murdered 7,000 men and, and boys of a particular ethnicity. That's genocide. Yeah. It's a fact. And then the other side of the coin is like, why does the international community hold back so long in recognizing genocides, especially a genocide that has come to an end? There is a stumbling block for ongoing genocide. A lot of countries that are like hesitant to label a current genocide as a genocide because a part of international law states that if you recognize a genocide and you do nothing, you are also breaking the law right. as a nation. So are we right? seeing this with, with China and the Uyghur Muslims? That could be a that could be a big part of why there's such a weak response to the to that okay. ongoing thing. But when it's something that happened like a decade ago, a century ago, I don't see where the why we why we hesitate so much. It surely is only good to call out nations for their past crimes like this. I think it's I think it's maybe as you say though the U.S. would then have to reflect on its own history and it's still I think that could be a part. Of it's it. still struggling to come to terms with what happened in the Capitol building in January. So what chances yeah, it have to yeah. reflect on things that happened? Well, let's say thirty years ago, fifty, hundred, two hundred years ago. Yeah. Yeah, so the big a big part of the question when you see all the countries respond to each other is, are any of them actually willing to listen? Or is it always going to be like, a, well, nobody's perfect. I'm not going to listen to you because you're not perfect either. And it's like, well, right. you don't have to be perfect to recognize somebody else's flaws and call them out on it. If, if nobody ever called people out on their flaws because none of us are perfect, we'd be pretty bad overall. Indeed. Okay, let's uh, give a passing mention to Biden's big speech uh, for his joint session of Congress. This was delivered on the eve of his 100th day. He pitched around $4 trillion of spending, which would be the largest overhaul of uh, US benefits since the 1960s. He called it a a once-in-a-generation investment, but of course, Mm -hmm. all these plans face an uphill battle before they become law. There, of course, has been widespread opposition to his plans from the Republicans. Uh, He only got a a handful of uh, applause from the Republicans during his speech, who otherwise sat there stony-faced, much like the Dems did with Trump. Uh, And uh, we did have a historic moment, though, with um, the vice president being a a woman and the Speaker of the House also being a woman. First time that's ever happened. Right. And uh, Biden Mm -hmm. made made reference to that at the start. He said, no president has ever said these words, Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President, and it's about time. And he got lots of applause for that. So, Ah. (laughs) indeed. So that was about it in terms of universal applause. But that's that's exactly the kind of like... uh, token gestures that I'm talking about, right? Great, we've got two people in the highest power 
who have been underrepresented. Now help everybody else who is underrepresented. Don't just like be a token at the top. Actually enact change that will help um, balance these things in the grand scale. Yeah, and also it doesn't say anything of their their competence, particularly with... Uh... No, uh, well, yeah, what what does is the fact that they're still holding kids in, 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 in cells uh, at the border and they're giving them um, Kamala's picture book. To, to read for entertainment. I saw that. We'll, we'll get that to that was, in a second. That was disgusting. <laughs> so, so some of the, the coverage I saw of this uh, speech, I saw some of it. It was, it's certainly ambitious. You know, they're they're really going for the far-reaching four trillion here rather than in the, the billions. Yeah. Most of it going towards uh, transport and uh, care for the elderly and also childcare. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. As I say, a long way to go before it gets to to law, but the three B's that I saw this uh, pictured as was it's big, it's bipartisan, and it was boring <laughs> because it lacked any sort of real spark or flashpoint. And linked to that, James, as you say, there are bigger things going on, including the fact that despite all his campaign pledges to sort out what's been happening at the southern border with Mexico, uh, pictures uh, and footage over the last couple of weeks have shown that the cages are essentially cages under a different name. Yep. Yeah, they've had some paint splashed on them. families are being separated. And then I'm going to do an edit right here because the next story we talked about turned out to be totally false and uh, we're very sorry about that. So we deleted it and now we move on back to the show. Okay, one final story before we uh, wrap up and move on to lighter topics. Arlene Foster has announced she is resigning as Northern Ireland's First Minister and as leader of the DUP after... What's called here an internal revolt. Mm -hmm. She's going to step down at the end of May and uh, step down as First Minister uh, a month after that. Uh, This is after more than 20 of her colleagues, uh, including uh, Northern Irish Assembly members and UK MPs, signed a letter voicing no confidence in her leadership. Right. So this, of course, is has been bigger news uh, across the Irish Sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, in terms of a, a UK perspective, James, what do you think this says about the, the standing of the DUP? Well, I think it's just kind of showing that I don't think any of the parties are actually happy with what happened over the course of the DUP selling themselves out for a few billion and um, right. propping up a government that then just like betrayed everything, every single promise they made. Um, but pretended they didn't betray them, um, and uh, we've ended up in a, in a result where neither neither side of the aisle is happy with the current state of affairs because there's this like there's a there's a border. It's kind of a floaty wispy one, but there's a border, and nobody wanted a floaty wispy border. So yeah, they're gonna blame the person who kind of took them in that direction and get rid of them. Okay, James, let's move on to our final section this week, which is the world of entertainment. Have you watched anything this week? I have. I I, I, I watched Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Hey, so did I. And Spider-Man Far From Home, because he told me to. Oh, nice. Okay, well, I've... Uh... I didn't put it in the run order, because it's like, I can just... <laughs> I can just... 
remember it right now Fair and enough. then quickly make up my notes okay well whilst you do that let me uh, add to that i watched a documentary and also we have an audiobook review from izzy which is excellent so looking forward to right. hearing that shortly let me start with the documentary it was called 1971 yes it is on youtube it is under uh, the citizens commission to investigate the fbi 1971 and it's right something which did very well in uh, independent film festivals a few years ago it tells the tale of a true story i should say of how eight people broke into a regional fbi office in 1971 right in media pennsylvania stole mm-hmm. all the files and then right. during the process of mailing these files out to various newspapers and news outlets uncovered the fact that the FBI were doing a whole host of terrible things and Shock what this and indeed but what this documentary does does really well is it paints the picture of what the FBI used to be like which was right a, an organization which was run by J Edgar Hoover who was appointed the director of the FBI at the age of 29 and was in charge for the next 37 years. Wow. And basically, it became an organization which was so powerful that even, as the documentary says, presidents were afraid of it. Yeah. uh, Because of the, the power it had. And whilst they had all these regional offices and uh, the US was in the midst of the Vietnam War, which was uh, deeply unpopular, people wanted to do something about it. And so these people broke in, stole the files, and uh, sent them out to the papers. But even in the aftermath of sending those pages out, every paper except the Washington Post decided to hand the files back to the FBI, Uh. which I thought was amazing. But that was the the reverence by which the FBI was held. And then once the Post published their their papers, the rest followed suit. Of course, of course. But what was really... um, so, so that to me, and even that, lucky the post did indeed, because it uncovered the likes of COINTELPRO, which was an FBI investigation into seven or eight different organizations in the U.S., including the Black Panthers, the Women's Liberation Movement, in which they were planting members of the FBI as supposed members to break up these groups from the inside yeah as we've seen with uh, this new film judas and the black messiah which did very well at the oscars i'll get to that in a second mm-hmm. and that was only uncovered because of these people in media pennsylvania right uh, the fbi it's also unveiled during this point that the fbi and this shocked me not only were of course bugging martin luther king's phone and tapping all his phone calls sent to him anonymous letters telling him to kill himself ah. to martin luther king Right. Because the FBI uh, viewed him as some sort of messiah figure who is who is a threat to democracy. Yeah. Which is staggering. Yeah. When you hear when you hear that, but again, completely unsurprising. It's just so, all, it's not it's it's the same. Like, things don't surprise but they disgust. Yeah. And it's also the fact that nothing changes because we saw this with yeah. Edward Snowden that the US were bugging essentially every phone in the US. Or could listen to... Sorry, I'll rephrase that. Could listen to the calls of every phone in the US and had bugged the likes of Angela Merkel's phone, the German Chancellor, all sorts of undercover sneaky stuff, which they have been doing as this uh, documentary unveiled for the past 70 years. So it's it's well worth a watch. The UK does... The UK does all these same things, these super unethical things. And whenever it's uncovered, the response is never to stop doing unethical things. It's to make them legal. Right. 
instead. Uh, uh, Awful. Uh, just just to to take this to, to a modern perspective, I was telling one of my friends who's uh, very clever and knows lots about data and stuff, and he said, you know, you, you have to be incredibly naive to think that the government isn't or rather uh, isn't on top of your phone yeah. of what you're searching of, of the calls you're making because that is how yeah, everything is not encrypted precisely you know your your digital footprint is is massive yep so so and that is a fact of life yeah i'm, sh- I'm sure that the government or whoever it is uh was ghq in in the gchq, GCHQ in the uk yeah have some sort of f- file on everyone everyone yeah and are able able to bring it up so it is worth a watch even if it's just a, a throwback to a time when yeah. institutions were uh, inherently doing immoral things but people just didn't know about it until these yeah. uh, eight bold people yeah and the response isn't well if you're not doing anything wrong you don't have anything to hide no you've got a right to privacy yep quit it you wouldn't want your neighbours knowing every single time that you were sexting your partner. Why would you want the government to know that? Indeed. Okay, James, let's uh, talk Falcon and the Winter Soldier. This is the Disney Plus Marvel TV show, six episodes long, focuses on the secondary characters uh, behind Captain America. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, Sam Wilson as the Falcon and Sebastian Stan as uh, Bucky Barnes of the Winter Soldier. Yes. Let me ask for your, your initial thoughts on the series. Did you like it? Would you would you recommend it? Overall, it was better than I expected. Yep. But I'd only watch it if you're invested in Marvel. It's not a standalone. It Really, I don't think it's a standalone at no. all. I, I would add to that and say I feel that the trailer in retrospect, was a very poor reflection of what the show was about. Yes. The, the, and the trailer I, and, and also episode one, I think, made it feel like it was going to be very much more, here's the military, the military is really cool, you should join the army. And then it didn't really do that, but it also didn't really undo that. Also, f- fun things I learned this week, the amount of Hollywood movies which are subsidized by the US military yeah. because they want you to join the army. Yeah, g- games too, uh, social media stuff, it's huge, it's huge. And okay. I, I lose respect for every single person who takes one of those deals. It's disgusting. It's manipulative and disgusting. It is, I agree. My thoughts on the show are, I agree, you have to be essentially really into the Marvel uh, canon yeah. if you are to fully enjoy the show, but I did appreciate the time the show took to essentially explore the characters a bit more. So instead of... It was worth it. it well, yeah, I agree. Because instead of a you know two-minute segment in a film, you've actually got a whole series of you know six hours worth of content yeah. to explore, let's say, the Winter Soldier's mental health or the fact that the, yeah. the Falcon has a sister who's losing a fishing business. You know, and that stuff... Yeah. It's really interesting. So and and the leads, the lead characters, all did really well with what they were given. And yeah, absolutely. For the most part, it, it's it's well acted. I, I thought it was well put together, if a little bit cliched at times. Yeah. And I would say that you could see some of the plot threads coming together a little too easily. Uh, what I would uh, contrast you this could with, see the, the you could see the the rushing they were doing to tie it together right. under COVID. Right. You could see the shortcuts they had to take. I would contrast this with One Division which held its cards up its sleeve, I would say until about the sixth episode of the eight. You still didn't really know what was going on, and I admired the fact that, okay, I mean, sure, it descended into classic third-act Marvel at the end, but it maintained its its cards, similar to what we saw with HBO's excellent series Watchmen up until the very end, whereas with this series, it was pretty clear what was happening as of the opening five minutes of the second episode. Yeah, we, we, meet, the, we meet the villains as a fully established organization with all of their morals on the table. 
table. Yes. They don't they don't develop anything. I also want to They just get a little bit of background. I also want to highlight Wyatt Russell, who is the actor who plays uh, let's say one of the leading characters in this series. He was Wait, John Walker. John, he plays John Walker. Yes. Yes. That's so we can use that name. Yes, we can. He plays John Walker. He is one of my favorite upcoming actors. I'll, I'll tell you why. If you want to go and see more of him, he is in this fantastic movie in which nothing really happens. Called Everybody Wants Some, with two exclamation marks. All right. Yeah. That film is genuinely. One of my favorite films of all time, even though nothing happens in it. Nothing really I think happens. A, I think it's a Richard Linklater film who did uh, right. School of Rock and um, what was that one? The, the boy one that they filmed over 18 years? Boyhood? No. Was it Boyhood? Boyhood? Yeah. No. Was it? I think it was that. Anyway, it's it's excellent. And I first saw Wyatt Russell in that movie. He also did a, a, a zombie-esque b-movie last year which i really enjoyed right i thought he was excellent in this he was perhaps a little two-dimensional as a a character but i enjoy i enjoy shortcuts again yeah right but i enjoy his acting and i'm excited to see what he does next i think he and his character while it was rushed as you say were great and then the final act completely undid all that hard work um ruined the momentum uh, and brushed it all aside um but they've at least like they've snagged the ip they've kept them around i've got quite a few notes if you want if we want to go through them do it you i'll say it you can respond and then you can like go. cut the bad ones sounds good right directly following john walker and um, overall he was good needed more time and more patience um and at the end um the the sudden switch of character wasn't earned and it sucked it was terrible. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right, you agree. Flag Smashers, the bad guys, they were really meh. Nothing, they, I didn't quite get them. Um, their their politics and philosophy seemed mixed. I think they shouldn't have even mentioned the snap. I think it was fine if they were just a, some people who didn't like nations having borders. Right. They didn't need to go into the snapping or anything. Well, not, don't, <laughs> hang on. Snapping. Yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> Their politics and philosophy was just like a weak version of actually interesting topics. So it's just what Marvel does. They take something that's legitimate and they kind of like boil it down into something very digestible, but overall weak. And again, their final arc was completely meaningless, completely rubbish. Rubbish. And and not earned. They didn't have a goal. To respond to that, I appreciated the fact that the show began with an established group instead of just one big bad guy. However, even within that homogenous organisation of flag smashers, you still had a lead character who I didn't feel was charismatic slash evil enough to actually carry the mantle of being the primary antagonist. So I feel it was a a failure of, I want to say casting. I thought the actors who played um, Carly Morgenthau was was fine but it was missing something it was missing i think she just didn't have enough to work with okay that's fair because they didn't they didn't give her the story to make her like a bad guy that we can empathize with i I agree with that they didn't any they, they just had this really mixed version of somebody who's good and evil at the same time but they didn't justify the good or the evil with any actual decent writing yeah that's fair so i feel sorry for her because it could have been really cool they could have used her as a messiah figure or anything but they didn't they were just like hey it's an evil person i guess but she's got good intentions maybe i'm not sure now she's now she's not a problem anymore anyway uh the winter soldier wonderful i really liked what they did with him um i think he he really worked well in most of the scenes he was in acted well um provided a, a good alternate to whoever he was bouncing off 
Um, and overall, I, I think he was like very much just episode to episode copy paste the same character, not, not not much development, but had the right questions being asked of him and had the right answers at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I was, as I said at the start of this review, I was pleased with the fact that they fleshed out the two leads. And yes. yeah, I was, I thought his, uh, his arc was good. Right. And the Falcon, same deal. He was good. He think I think he earned his journey to his final form well enough. I think his final form looked real goofy, and I hope that that doesn't <laughs> stick. Um, <laughs> I think he had just about enough character and political depth. Again, it was very much a boiled-down version of, of real things that were meaningful. They did manage to get a lot of meaning into his character here. Um, I, I do have gripes with... Uh, now, 30-second spoiler warning here. Um, for anybody, just skip forward a wee bit. I do have gripes with how easily every single human being seems to be able to wield cap the cap's shield. We did it. No, sorry, sorry. We had a montage I, I, for I about forty five seconds that showed he was clearly working on it. Yeah, but before the montage, he was playing frisbee with with the Winter Soldier with it. That is true. Bouncing it off trees, right? It seems you know how heavy that thing would be. How heavy it is. How fast it moves. How hard it is to bounce something off a thing and have it go in the right direction. The, I, I used to be impressed by the shield manoeuvres and I'm just like, oh, I guess anybody can do it after they play with it well, for a bit. The thing is, you have to forget the rules of physics in, in this yeah. entire genre because as soon as it hits that tree, it's just going to hit the ground. It's not going to rebound back to you. Yeah. I just, it's just, when a Winter Soldier was like bouncing the shield back and forth with Cap, I was like, oh, that's a really cool character moment. His best friend is also a super soldier and they can, they can do this together. That's really well established. And then like several other people can do it now and I'm just like, Okay, I've, this has lost all meaning to me. I don't care anymore. It's a shield. <laughs> um, anyway, um, yeah, so Falcon, great. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with, with that whole situation as they move into the next film that comes out with these characters. Um, I feel like the side characters of Hoskins and Torres, and that's Hoskins uh, on uh, for John Walker and Torres for the for the Falcon, yep. were actually very good additions. I agree. Um, and we're well done. Again, we're mostly acting as conveniences and we're mostly acting as plot drivers and people who just needed to get the thing to progress to the next stage indeed but they were good additions and i hope to see more of however much of them we can see <laughs> <laughs> trying not to spoil things. yeah i get that i get that okay anything else to add uh absolutely sharon underwhelming i'm not surprised that they made her not like a real good guy at the end of the day um She's kind of got this this dark side to her because she had to she got booted out of the states. So no. Yep. Um. But they could do a lot better with her. It was really boring and really well, really poorly delivered. And the worst post credit scene in Marvel history <laughs> happened with this show. Did you see the post credits for the final final episode? I did. Yeah. It was awful, and especially the final shot. I could see the editing mistake in the final shot where it. <laughs> Yep, it yep, starts yep. before she's even hit her cue. <laughs> it was the worst post credits ever, and it made me, it made everything fall flat. I was just like, wait, how did this get onto my TV? Yeah, it, it did make me think. What was the thought process behind this, and who said, I, "Yeah, let's fine, let's keep it, let's put it in." <laughs> this looks good. This this flows real well. As opposed to someone who said, actually. This doesn't really work. Let's just not do one. But it's a you know it's it's Marvel. <laughs> yeah. they, they've made this rod for their own back in that everything yeah. has to have post credits. So even if it is deeply flawed and just objectively bad, 
we still have to put it in because we need a post-credit scene. Yeah. So that was that's their own fault. Yeah. So overall, the show is like uneven. It had good bits, it had bad bits. You could you could taste the parts where they had to slice entire story arcs out for COVID reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it had confused levels of good and badness for everybody, including Zemo, who was pretty good but kind of distracted. He was he was good too early in the show. Yep. He was distracting from the establishing of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Sorry, I didn't talk about about Zemo there. Um, but yeah, overall, uh, mixed bag. Eh. They've established some pretty good IP, though. They've got themselves a few good films out of this, I think, with some new characters as well. Indeed. Okay, let's move on. If you want to review a show or a film or anything that you have enjoyed, you can send it to us, seesawparade at gmail.com. That review is longer than our review of like all the drama of the world ever. I think we talked about that show for like an hour. It was very thorough. As uh, Izzy has sent us a review this week, let's have a listen. Hello, Seesaw Parade. It's Izzy here and I Hi, have Izzy. a review for you. Thank you. I am someone who likes to read, um, but I don't have a lot of time to actually sit down with a good book because uh, baby and children and moving house and things. So mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time listening to good books. Um, I do use Audible and the review I'm going to give you is from one of their free to members audio dramas. Ah. It is called Oris, spelt A-U-R-I-S. And um, it's one of these ones that I wasn't sure if it was going to be good or not. And I thought I would try the first episode to see if I liked it. And oh my goodness, by the time I had finished the first episode, I downloaded the rest. Some of the episodes are over an hour long. Some of them are only 20 minutes but the way the story keeps progressing just kept me hooked. Nice. The premise is about someone who has been forced to confess to a crime and is now in prison. And there is a podcaster who is attempting to free him by finding the truth. I will be honest, the ending was not clean cut oh. and left a lot of questions. Right. But actually, I really, really like the ending. Okay. I will not give anything at all away. Absolutely. But needless to say, if you can get this drama through Audible or through another source, I would absolutely recommend it. It is brilliant. Wonderful. Thank you, Seesaw Parade. Bye. No, my pleasure. Well, there we go. That's a review of Auris or Auris. A-U-R-I-S. No, sounds, sounds great. I, I like a series of any media where you'll get left with questions at the end, but you kind of like the questions that you're left with. I approve of that. Indeed. And there are there are two things I want to quickly review before we go, but these are, these are faster. Yeah, go, go, go. Far From Home, Speederman. I had no idea if they had decided at any point if it was a group of villains or one bad guy holding the rest of his team hostage. Because both are very strongly implied. Okay. And that's a big weakness in the film for me. Um, because at some points it looks like they're all celebrating bringing down Tony Stark's legacy and at some points it looks like he's holding the rest of his bad guy team hostage. And I'm like, what? I, don't, I, I, I challenge that. I wouldn't say hostage. I would say he's just like a really terrible boss who makes them all feel very bad. Yeah, points guns at them. But they're them. all on the same team. He, he just points guns at them. That feels like hostage situation yeah, yeah. to me. Feels like if you don't do this, I kill you. That feels like hostage situation. That's not bad, <laughs> well, boss. It's just if like, your boss is point. If your boss is threatening you with death for not delivering, I feel like maybe you've got a boss that is breaking the law. It's a bad work environment, <laughs> right? Um, but he, overall, the villain's really good. Gyllenhaal does a great job. I hope he comes back, even if it is just as a hologram. I guess because 
one of his underlings took a memory card at the end, which implies that we might see more of him. Indeed. I don't know. The VFX were a bit too ambitious. They felt a wee bit like YouTube After Effects at, at several points. Um, they were using some very simple plugins and stuff. But overall, the, the ambition, of course, it was going to look like this. They did a lot with the, with the VFX. Um, the, the humor was acceptable for the most part. The story was super rushed, but it had to be. Um, and it was just, it just, it was the usual. This was a very much a superhero film. It relied on all the conveniences, all the norms, everything. And it was fine. Yeah. Jake is great. Tom is handsome. Film is worse than the first. Yeah. It's a Marvel film. Yeah. It, it does have some fights in the daytime, though. So that's one bonus point, is that not every action scene <laughs> happened at night. The only thing I wanted to view is the first act of season two of Megalobox. Wow. We don't often talk about things halfway through the season anymore. We learned our lesson from Game of Thrones, but Megalobox is an anime and its season two has kicked off so wonderfully that I had to pay respects to the first four episodes. Okay. Um, the first four episodes basically feel like a short film, but in episodic form, where they are... They're taking a very much finished story from season one and going, here's how we're earning the right to, to write another story for this character. And here's a bunch of side characters. And they establish so many things and so many characters. And they finish so many story arcs in four episodes in a super satisfying and emotional way that I was mind blown that you could do it so quickly. Like, it was such a good re-entry to a show. And I really hope the rest of the season delivers. Because I am, I am, sh- I, I, every time I finished an episode, I was like out for 20 minutes thinking about it. And it's a show about robot people who have robotic augments on their arms helping them do boxing good. <laughs> wow. It's genuinely one of the most impressive things I've seen for a season two. Very ambitious because it kind of threw away most of season one and went, eh, no, everything's, everything sucks now. And here's, here's why. But they didn't do it via flashbacks or via like, uh, establishing episode they just taught t- showed it all over the course of these first four episodes establishing what's what's happened what's going on what's the mysteries what this season's all about and i'm amazed that they managed to pull it off so well okay our final story for the week is the oscars the shortest dimensions to this nomad land won best picture won a couple others uh, sir anthony hopkins uh, and daniel kaluuya were the other british stars who picked up some gongs for uh, best actor and best supporting actor yeah uh, kaluuya was for judas and the Black Messiah, which is his role as uh, Fred Hampton and his uh, assassination by the CIA slash yeah. FBI slash everybody in power. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, the director of Nomadland, Chloe Zhao, making history as only the second woman in 93 editions of the Oscars yeah. to win Best Director. And She's also the first... Third. Asian, yeah, third Asian and first uh, non-white woman, yeah, to win uh, best director, which is a shocker. But it, we're here; it's a landmark. Well done. No, yeah, no. hopefully we see more like less gatekeeping around who can win these things. Indeed, we had uh, Yu Jung Yoon win supporting actress for Minari, which is excellent. Oh yeah, that was cool. And uh, the only point I want to raise <laughs> here, <laughs> I don't remember what she said. I think she was like. <laughs> you guys are all so stupid. I didn't earn this. And she also, I was asking Brad Pitt where he was whilst they were filming the movie, and it was so great to meet him. Uh, <laughs> the, the one point I want to raise as we wrap up is it seemed to me like they rearranged the running order of the show so that they could end they with Chadwick Boseman, the late great Chadwick Boseman, winning Best Actor right. for Ma Rainey. And then when he didn't. And Anthony Hopkins won it, and oh. he wasn't even there, and he wasn't allowed to zoom in because the Oscars told said no. 
it just ended very flat. It was just like, oh, none. I did not realize that was the last one. I thought it was a flat enough award, even if they didn't build up right. the whole way to it. So oh, usually, dear. usually Best Picture is the last one. Yeah. But because I feel, and throughout the show, they were building to, let's remember Chadwick, and then he didn't win. He didn't win. And the yeah. whole thing just went, oh, oh no. He, oh, he what didn't was the win. whole show for? Right. And also the I mean, fact that Hopkins wasn't even there. He was asleep. Yeah. Like that's 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 awkward. I I didn't I didn't know that. I thought it was awkward enough that that Hopkins got it, and I just I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did a great job in the film that he was in. It sounds like a challenging role. Yep. Um, but I thought it was awkward enough that he got it, and he wasn't there on either scene to get <laughs> to to do a speech. Right. I didn't know it was like the big finale. Yeah, that so, is terrible. Yeah, so it was the final thing, and at 83 years old, he had decided to stay in Wales because, you know, pandemic, fair enough. Yeah, had yeah. offered Had offered to be on Zoom, and the producer said no because I imagine they thought that Chadwick was a shoe-in to win. They must have, and yeah. Then when, and then when he didn't, the backlash was, I can't believe you didn't give it to Chadwick, which is actually aimed at all the, the members of the Academy rather than the producers because they didn't know. They didn't know, They were know, just guessing. Yeah. But they were like, just like, all right, Okay, it, it it maybe should have been Chadwick. And as I say, or as I said in my review, I am yet to see all of the performances, but Chadwick Boseman was phenomenal mm-hmm. in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and I would have given it to him. Yeah, even if it was just the the kind of posthumous rub that the likes of Heath Ledger got. Which, and again, I'm saying this exceptional performances, but it helps. Yeah, but, because but also, you've got that rub, you do have that rub. Yeah, but also the Oscars get things wrong all the time, and then everybody forgets this every year as it comes up. But they they get <laughs> yeah. so many things wrong, and then you just forget about it. And the the films that are good and the performances that are good get remembered on their own merits anyway, right? Look, if you go back through the Oscars list and look at the films that won, and then the nominees for the things that <laughs> were also up against them, you'd be like, "Oh, I, I liked all those nominees more." That yep. those are those have those have lasted much longer than the thing that won. Yeah, there's it's, it's the Oscars. They suck. It's only the the BuzzFeed articles that help me remember that Crash won in two thousand and two, and in nineteen ninety four. Shakespeare in Love beats Saving Private Ryan. Oh yeah, <laughs> which is yeah, that's one of the big mad. ones. But uh, anyway, that was that was the Oscars. One of those films I would watch happily. The other one <laughs> has aged very badly. Yep, it's Shakespeare in Love. Okay, right. The end of the show <laughs> is here because we have talked for far too long. James, thank you for your time. We have. I'll see you next week. No, thank you anybody who has listened this far, and thank you people who haven't. But you just don't get to know that I said it. <laughs>